Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're looking at verses 1 through 9. If you don't have your Bible, you can use one under the seats or just listen. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for a day to worship a day to read your word, to hear your word, to sing the truths of your word, to pray your word together. We pray, God, that you would help us to understand your word, especially here as we look at Acts 17. Teach us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this passage, and it made me think of Aerosmith. The band, the band. Yeah, 1993, Aerosmith released an album called Get a Grip. Get a Grip, that was the album. And one of the songs, one of the popular songs on that album uh, was Living on the Edge. Anybody know that song? Okay, I'm a half of you. All right, for those of you that don't, the first line is truth. It's just truth. Opening line is there's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. There's something wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way, and God knows it ain't his. It sure ain't no surprise. And the chorus is, you can't help yourself from falling. You can't help yourself at all. I like that song. The video is weird. Don't watch the video. Just (laughs) trust me on the video. Just skip the video. It's R-rated almost. Video is weird. Aerosmith got that right, right? They got that right. There's something wrong with the world. I don't know what it is. We're seeing things in a different way, and it's not God's way. We're not seeing things the way that they are. And there doesn't seem to be any help from falling. And it raises the question, like, is it possible? Is it possible to see things God's way? Is it possible to see things the way that they really are, because God's way of seeing things is not a perspective, it is truth. It is fact, it is reality. You and I can have a perspective, right? Different angles, different perspective, but, but God's view of things is in fact reality. How do we see things God's way? Well, the simple answer for us as Christians is we are enabled to see things the way God sees things to the best of our ability through God's word, 
and God's gospel, more specifically. God's word, God's revelation, his scripture is true and trustworthy, and it tells the truth. I love the Bible. I was just telling somebody recently that the Bible is the most honest book. Honest. It doesn't play. It's honest. It tells you how it is, not just how it should be. You won't find a a book that is more sympathetic to your struggles and also more corrective to your waywardness or more helpful to your needs. The Bible gives us God's perspective, and it's the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus in this book that actually changes the heart so that we can see things God's way. And as the gospel spreads, right, as the gospel spreads, the world, the world in a sense gets turned upside down. As people begin trusting and believing in Jesus, the world, as we're going to see in this passage, sort of gets flipped on its head, at least from some people's perspectives. And this flip, right, this upside downing of the world does not happen by human wisdom nor by political power. It happens by the means of grace. And here's specifically what I want us to hold on to. The one principle I want us to hold on to as we're looking at this passage, principle is this. The world is turned upside down, and I mean that in the best way. The world is turned upside down by reasoning from Scripture and reaching all kinds of people with the gospel. That's how the world gets turned upside down, by reasoning from the Scripture and reaching all kinds of people with the gospel. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through these nine verses. In verses uh, one through three, we're going to see what we mean by reasoning from the scriptures. Okay? Verse four, we're going to see what it means to reach all kinds of people. And then in verses five through nine, we'll look at how that results in turning the world upside down. First, verses one through three, this reasoning from the scripture. If you're new to the book of Acts or new to Redeemer, let me just tell you very, very briefly that Paul and Silas and their crew, they have a team, like this missions team. Uh, they are out and about. They're preaching the gospel. They're on this missionary journey where they are starting churches or planting churches. They're preaching the gospel. They're making disciples. They're doing this great work. And the context is they're passing some of these cities, right? They're passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia until they get to Thessalonica. Why are they passing these cities? There's sinners in those cities. There's people that need Jesus in those cities. Why are they passing those cities? We don't know all of the details, but what we do know is what Paul's looking for. And this kind of gets us to his strategy. Why would he pass by some cities and land on others? All are in need. So what's he doing? Well, one of the things that Paul likes to do is he likes to find a synagogue. And that's where he starts a new round of ministry. You know why he goes to a synagogue? What does the synagogue have? The gathering of the Jews. What did every synagogue have? They have God's word, and they had monotheists, right? They had people who believed in Yahweh, at least in some sense, right? People who believed in God, ready to hear God's word, ready to debate and discuss God's word, right? Shever Torah, where they would gather and debate and discuss the scripture. So he would go there because there he can take the word and then preach that word. He can explain it. He can point people to Jesus. And that's really where we look at his method in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, as Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, that is the Messiah. So here is his basic methodology, and it's really helpful. It should be helpful for us. It should be instructive for us as Christians in churches. And what does Paul do? Number one, Paul takes his time. 
That doesn't mean that he's slow, but he takes as much time as he can in any given situation, context, location, uh, meeting, right? He takes as much time as he can in order to accomplish his goal, right? He's not quick about it, and we live in a culture that likes things quick. We like TikTok, right? We like small bits of entertainment or information. We like it short and succinct, get it. And for many Christians and many ministries, it, is, it has become simply about, if not entertainment in the worst sense, uh, in a better sense, it's just about conveying information. And so they just want to convey information as quickly and as cleanly as they can, in, out, and that's it. And that's not what Paul is doing. Paul takes his time, at least as much time as he can, right? Because he has a desire that is greater than to merely communicate information. He takes as much time as he can, number one, in order to, number two, reason with them from the scriptures. He reasons with them from the scripture. Now this is really helpful because we value something called proclamation. Right? Because as Christians, especially in the, in the Reformed Protestant tradition, right, we believe in proclamation, declaration, that it is the church's responsibility, right, it is the Christian's responsibility to declare what God has done. Right? We proclaim, we herald good news. Right? So there is this proclamation, uh, the Son of God has come, he has fulfilled the law, he has died on the cross for sinners, he, he rose from the dead, he has ascended into heaven, he's coming again. We declare what Jesus has done. That's what we do. We declare. But we do not only declare. Clearly, we also reason with people from the Scripture. It's part of Paul's method. He reasoned whenever he had the opportunity to reason with people is to seek to persuade them of something. You reason with them. You seek to move them from A to B to C. And the reason this is valuable is because it demonstrates, right? I think it demonstrates that we aren't just interested in communicating information. We're interested in people <coughs> believing to reason with them to believe means that we actually care, right? We, we want them to know the truth. We want them to know God. We want them to believe the gospel. We want them to follow Jesus. We don't want them to perish. We don't want them to suffer damnation. We don't want them to be separated from God. We want them to have the same salvation that we have. Listen, I've seen and you've seen other groups of so-called Christians that really stand out, hold up signs, that say, oh, you're all going to hell. Newsflash, genius, we're all going to hell, okay? So yes, we need to start with this. We're all going to hell, and that's fair and just. Now, what is the proclamation that we've been given as the church? That God loves sinners who are hellbound, and that he has sent his son to save hellbound sinners. That's our message, not just people are going to hell. And this means that we need to reason with people, but not just reason with them, to reason with them from the scriptures. Right? That's the appeal. Now, let me be clear here. As we walk through the book of Acts, you're going to see that, that Paul doesn't only appeal to Scripture when he's reasoning people, but he always appeals to Scripture when he's reasoning with people. And he ultimately appeals to Scripture 
when he reasons with people. And you'll see that as we make our way through chapter, even just chapter 17. But for now, know this, though it's not only an appeal to scripture, it is always an appeal to scripture, and it is ultimately an appeal to scripture when he is reasoning with them. Why scripture? Why does Paul reason with them from the scripture? It's not just because he has the opportunity to. It's not just because he's talking to Jewish people who are sympathetic to the scriptures. It is because the scripture is the instrument that God uses to change people's minds and hearts. It's what he uses. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and the discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is the book of all books, written by apostles and prophets, but inspired by God. It is perfect and trustworthy, and it is powerful. God actually changes people's hearts. He opens their eyes to spiritually see, their ears to spiritually hear. It's what he uses to bring people from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you know this, if you're a Christian, you know this, that God used his word, the truths of his word, to bring you forth. That's why it says in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul's talking to Timothy, and he says, you know the sacred writings, the scriptures. You've known them from since you were a boy because of your grandmother and your mother. They were the ones that invested in you. And you know, he says, that those sacred writings are what make you wise unto salvation. Salvation comes by the word. Right? Faith comes by hearing the word, Paul says, in Romans. And even we see this in Jesus. And I want you to keep this passage in mind. In Luke chapter 24, so Jesus has fulfilled his earthly ministry and he suffered on the cross. He died on the cross, was laid in the tomb. And three days later, he's raised from the dead. But at this point, many of the disciples are still kind of walking around like, I can't believe he's dead, man. I can't believe he's gone. You know, and there are two disciples walking to Emmaus on this road and Jesus appears next to them and he's just kind of walking with them and they don't get that it's Jesus. And they're not exactly looking for Jesus to show up. But for some reason, they didn't quite recognize and understand him. So Jesus is walking with them, these disciples, these believers, and they're discouraged. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? That's an important word. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, that's another way of saying he reasoned with them, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus did it before Paul did it. He reasoned with these people as he, they were on the way to Emmaus from the scriptures. It was an appeal to persuade them to see what they have been missing. And what is this message? We go back to Acts 17. What is Paul's message, right? It's the same thing that Jesus did, to see Christ in all of the scriptures. In 17.3, it says, explaining and proving that it was necessary. Same word that Jesus used. 
It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That's a very key word, a very important word for a Jewish audience. It means the Messiah, the one, the deliverer that you've been waiting for, longing for, reading of all of these generations. It's Jesus. He died and he rose. He's the Messiah. That's essentially the message. So what does this boil down to? It means that The method of Paul was to take as much time as he could to reason with people from the scriptures to communicate a message that focused on the person and the work of Jesus. Focused on, it doesn't mean his teaching was exclusive to the person and work of Jesus, but that was at the center, that was at the heart of it. The person and work of Christ. The person, that is who he is. And his work, that is what he has done. And even then, the the focus of that is Christ's death for sinners. Right? It's what Jesus said in Luke 24. And it's even what we read earlier today when we celebrated the Lord's Supper, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. How does God save sinners? How does Jesus rescue the wayward? By dying for us. How are we cleansed from our guilt? By Christ taking our guilt upon himself. His blood therefore cleanses us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus died for sinners. So this is Paul reasoning from the scriptures. And what we know is that reasoning from the scriptures and therefore reaching all kinds of people is what leads to the world getting turned upside down. So let's talk about that. Reaching all kinds of people in verse 4. I love this verse. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. This is instructive for us, right? Because church planting, that is church starting, but also just church growth. If you, listen, as a former church planter, right? Um, as a church that has planted churches, I've assessed a lot of church planters through, through both the Southern Baptist Convention and Acts 29 in our past. Like, I've seen a lot, I've read a lot of books, I've listened to a lot of guys, there is a popular approach or aim among church planting ministries and gurus, and that is they aim to convert a particular kind of person. They call it the homogeneous principle. Some of you know this. In other words, it's frankly, it's easier to get a bunch of people together and more people together if they all look alike. Because we tend to like people who look like us. That's why I like very few people. Not many people look like me. I am all by myself in the ugly corner. <laughs> and then I just say I like being alone, but the reality is there's nobody looks like me. It's, it's like we, 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 and we know the homogeneous principle works, right? Because that you see, clicks, right? Even in high school, like, oh, like when I was in high school, it was like, okay. We all had names for them, but like, okay, they're the, everybody kind of dressed the same. There was the Leather jackets and black t-shirts and boots and earrings over here and long hair. And then over here, there's like collared shirts with alligators on them and khakis. And, and then they're like all, and you could, you could see like, oh, the, 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 the 
the jocks, they all, well, they, they wore like outfits for sports ball and stuff. They all, everybody kind of looked the same. We know homogeneous principle works, and so a lot of churches are doing it. They're like, oh, we're going to go ahead and go for a particular kind of people. Because if, you, if, you, if it's too broad, if it's too mixed, then people are going to encounter people that aren't like them, and that might be uncomfortable. But that's not a biblical approach to church planting or church growth or church outreach, evangelism, and discipleship. That is not how it's supposed to be done. That's certainly not how we see it being done in Scripture, and it certainly isn't in line with Christ's message or work. The biblical aim is to reach, and I'll put it like this so it's really concrete. The biblical aim is to reach the entire community in which you exist. Now, some of those communities are very diverse, and some of those communities are not very diverse. Some communities are more homogeneous. Others are not. But the goal should be to reach everyone, at least to preach and and outreach to everyone in a given community. And we see it here, right? Jews, Greeks, and even women. Which is like a funny thing. Because you're reading it and you're like, yeah, yeah, I got got the Jews, got the Greeks, and women. Why are they singled out? That seems kind of strange. Aren't there Jewish women? Aren't there Greek women? So take note of this, right? This... The book of Acts demonstrates that the gospel is being proclaimed to all and is being received by all kinds of people. And so you have the Jews who are believing, and you, you might think like, well, they're, they're more likely to believe because they have the Bible, they're familiar with the scripture, but that's not even the case. Some of them are believing, and that's great. But then you have these, these God-fearing Greeks. These are people that were, that, that were not born Jewish, but they've come to embrace the Jewish faith, at least to some degree, and so they're in synagogue, and they're hearing, and now they're believing as well. But then he points out that there are even these leading women. And let's be clear here. The leading women that are mentioned here are not simply the wives of important men. That's not what it says. These are leading women in the community, which means that these are women of means, right? They are either successful or influential by, uh, for a variety of reasons, but mostly because of their own efforts and abilities. And it's interesting here because we see this in scripture, the gospel reaches all kinds of people, and in this case, it's highlighting, right? Oh, it's these, these women of means. And as, as we're gonna continue through the book of Acts, you'll, you'll find various kinds of men in stark opposition. And it's not a female versus male sort of a thing, uh, as if one group was for Jesus and the other group wasn't. The point is, is that the gospel is making inroads into all kinds of subcultures and community groups. There is no homogeneity here. It is gospel for all. See, it demonstrates the power of the gospel because the gospel isn't just something that resonates with a couple of people. You've heard the expression, and maybe you haven't. I've heard the expression before, oh, Christianity is a European religion or it's a white man's religion. Christianity is from Israel, right? Right? Christianity started in Israel, and then it went to Turkey and Ethiopia, countries in Africa, it, it, it went to Greek, Greece and, and to Rome. It, it's, it's, not, it's not any one culture's religion. It is the truth of God. It is the revelation of God. It is the work of God. It is the word of God for everyone. We have a faith that is for all people, not because it just works for all people, because, but because that's its design. Jesus died for all kinds of people. In fact, we see this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. There's this vision in Revelation 
And this vision, there's a song being sung. It's all about Jesus and about how Jesus is worthy. Why is Jesus worthy? It says in verse 9, he is worthy because he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and has made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That's what Jesus did. All kinds of people. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of God. What else is going to bring all of us together here if it isn't some form of entertainment? What's going to actually knit us together to become a family of people who genuinely love each other? But the truth of God's word, the truth of Jesus. So what this means is that as it relates to reaching all kinds of people, it means in any context that the gospel is offered, it must be offered to all. We preach the gospel indiscriminately, liberally, to everyone, to the rich, to the poor, because no one is more deserving. No one is less deserving. And all are equally needy to men and to women, to people of every socioeconomic bracket, educated, uneducated, moral, immoral. We preach the gospel to all. And when people of all kinds are believing the gospel, that's when, that's when the world begins to be tipped upside down. And the world don't like that. The world doesn't like that. And that's, that's what we see, right? We're supposed to, as, as the people of God, as, as, as a part of the church, we reason from the scriptures and we reach all kinds of people and this turns the world upside down. We see this in verses five through nine. And what we see is that there's, there's anger and jealousy arising up among some of, of the Jews, right? And so they, it says that they're, they're frustrated and uh, they're, they're jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason. Who's Jason? That's, I remember, like, I was reading it and I was like, Jason? What kind of an American translation is this? Jason? Jason's like the name of a millennial who drives a... Hyundai, like a Jason just sounds like a, I don't know, it just seems weird, like Jason. Good biblical name. It's just not a super common biblical name. You know, it's a common name. It's just not, you don't see it a lot in scripture. Um, so this, this small group of people were upset. They were jealous that the, the influence and the change that was happening, all kinds of people are believing. And so they put a mob together and they go to the house of Jason. Why did they go to the house of Jason? Because Jason was a believer in Thessalonica and his house was used as sort of a, like a hostel, hangout, uh, a, a, a stopping point, a, a place for ministry to get done as Christians came into the city. And so they know like this is where the guys would be. So let's go get them. So they go to the house of Jason. And they're not there. So what do they do? Well, they take Jason. <laughs> it's his house. They take Jason and any of the people with him. And they tell, not lies, but they are accused of some, some crimes that would put them in serious trouble. Right? They're... Listen to what it says. These 
men who have turned the world upside down. Now here he's talking about Paul and Silas, right, the apostles. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This world has been turned upside down. Let's just stop there, that accusation. These guys have turned the world upside down. Changing things. Now, how are they, before we get to what it is, how are they turning the world upside down? They're not doing it by changing social structures. Now, changing social structures is important. Bad social structures need to be changed, and we can get involved in that. But that's not what they're doing. They're not changing social structures. The world is getting turned upside down, not by them changing social structures or institutions, but by them preaching the word and God transforming hearts. Hearts, changed hearts is leading to whatever they mean by turning the world upside down. You see, because when hearts are changed, people are changed, and when people are changed, allegiances change. And that gets us to verse seven, right? What are they saying? Like, hey, they're breaking the laws. They're, they're, they're transgressing uh, you know, the, the decrees of Caesar, and scholars debate exactly what particular decrees might be violated here. But the point is this. Because they have believed in Christ, and it's not just one group, it's, 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 it's a group made up of people from all the different groups. And they now have an allegiance to Jesus, who they say died and rose and has ascended into heaven and is reigning from heaven and is coming again. And they're saying, my allegiance is to him above all else, above my family, above my neighbors, above Caesar. Christ comes first and I will obey him before I obey Caesar. So this is the charge, this is the problem. So they're turning the world upside down, causing chaos, in the minds of some at least. The world, the world getting turned upside down, let's be clear, the world getting turned upside down is an effect of our mission, but it is not our mission. Our mission is not to turn the world upside down, but that does happen to greater or lesser degrees when people's lives are being changed by the gospel. We're not agents of chaos. That's not, that's not what we are. We, are. we are agents of divine order. Right? Now, to the world who lives in chaos, order can look rather scary. They look at us and they think, like, you're preaching a kind of foolishness, but we know it's divine wisdom. Right? So the world turned upside down is really not a world that is upside down. It is a world turned right side up in measure. Right? That's what's happening. The world, the world is seeing things in a different way. It's not God's way. They're not seeing it right. What they think is upside down is right side up, and what they think is right side up is upside down. The world can't see. We cannot perceive until Christ opens our eyes. And if you do this, if we as Christians are faithful in doing this, if we're preaching the gospel and making disciples and people's lives are being changed and their ultimate allegiance becomes the lordship of Jesus and now that impacts their lives, there is going to be an impact, right? Worlds, they're turning things upside down and maybe it only happens in your family. Maybe it happens in a community neighborhood or a city. And sometimes the, the, the impact sociologically is pretty big. If you do this, you can expect the opposition. 
We see in verses eight and nine that uh, the authorities brought Jason and his friends in and basically fined them, stole their money for helping Paul and Silas preach the gospel and rescue people from hell itself and lives without meaning or purpose or true joy. I was reading this and thinking about it all week, and I was thinking, you know, we, we, kind of, we live in the upside down, right? This, this, to the world, it looks upside down, but it's, we know it's not. We live there. It's God making things right. That's what salvation is. God making things right. He's writing things. And, and the first thing that he writes is your heart. Because your heart is upside down. Your heart isn't right. Your heart doesn't work right. You hear the gospel, and God's Holy Spirit invades your existence and your life, and the Holy Spirit is the one who ultimately persuades you to believe. And your heart is turned right side up. It works. And this is good news. This is good news. Do you know that word gospel means good news? This is good news. It's good news for the world, but it's good news for you, Christian. We can't forget that. It's good news for the world because I'm telling you, the world is starting. I think it always has. I think it always has. Aerosmith demonstrates this, right? And I, I tend to take note of, of rock and heavy metal lyrics where um, they, they, uh, they hit on truth, uh, without knowing the full details of it, right? You know, and I'm not talking about reading Christian meaning into their lyrics. I mean, like, no, them understanding and perceiving truths that we would agree with. I like to take note of that because it, it happens, but I see it happening more and more. They just don't know what the answer is. More and more, I see people saying, things are not adding up. The math isn't working, right? The, 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 I don't understand. This, things are wrong. Things are deeply wrong in the world. I can, I can look inside myself, and I can cut myself open, and I can see that there is a poison, there is a dirt inside of me that I cannot get out. You can't help yourself at all. So they're looking, well, what do we do? How do we fix this? What, what's the answer? God has sent us into the world to proclaim this gospel message that there is cleansing and renewal, that there is a writing by divine order, what God has established, what we have broken. There is salvation and redemption offered to all who humbly accept, who humbly believe the Son of God who was sent to save us. That's good news for the world. But it's good news for you and I in here who have already believed, right? If you see your heart, you're like, well, my heart has already been made right. I've, I've believed. Yeah, but you also know that your heart tends to wobble, doesn't it? Your heart can lean hard. We, we can, our heart can grow cold and we can get hardened and we can become lazy and apathetic or our doubt can overtake us and we can pursue. Listen, God's given us a will, the ability to choose. We sometimes will just choose poorly. We will do wrong. And what's our hope? What's our way back? Because you know the feeling. The feeling is there's no way back. Some of you have gone so far in your lives that you think like there's no way back. I don't see how it's possible. But that's the good news, right? That's the gospel, that it's, it's God who writes your heart. He did the big writing of your heart so long ago. You think he's tired? 
that he won't do it again. Not that you've lost your salvation and you need to recover it, but that you've lost this communion with God and this joy of salvation. You've lost your way a little bit, not your salvation. And you think God can't bring you back, restore you, that God can't change you, that he won't sanctify you? Do you think the scripture has lost his power, that the Holy Spirit is not close enough to reach you? There is revival and restoration and renewal and refreshment offered to us all through God's word and his gospel. It's how the world is turned upside down and we're made right, right side up. And it's how you are made right and turned right side up as well. God's word and his gospel is a gift. Let's listen to it. Let's believe it. Let's heed it and eagerly anticipate that our world that God loves would increasingly be turned upside down for his glory and for the good of our neighbors. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you teach us Would you keep, keep us humble, Lord? Don't let us, don't let us become proud. Don't let us become too cold, Lord. And, and, and if you have allowed us to run in a wrong direction, if we have become hardened or cold or rebellious, Lord, would you soften our hearts today through your word? Your word is here. Your spirit is here. Your people are here. Lord, we're, all of the means of grace are here. So, Lord, we know that you can revive and change and restore and encourage. Lord, would you, would you do that? We pray, God, that you would be at work in everyone's heart here, that every one of us would be drawn by your spirit closer to Jesus. And for some, maybe it'll be the first time in their lives where they are drawn close and believe. And for, other, maybe, for others, maybe it's a returning. For others, maybe, Lord, it's just a, a growing intimacy and communion with you. We pray that you would draw us all close to your son, that we might become more like him together. In Jesus' name, amen.